1: Jason Pack.
2: And I'm Alex Hall Hall, and this is Disorder, a podcast where we try to find a semblance of order in our mad, 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 mad world.
1: This week, AI, elections, misinformation, and the vengefulness nature of neopopulism. A heady brew poised to disorder our world in 2024 if we are not sufficiently prepared.
2: And here's the kicker, listeners. What you just heard wasn't us speaking at all. That was an artificial intelligence version of our voices. Be afraid. Be very, very afraid. So, listeners, 2024 is the year of elections. As many as 64 countries in the world plus the European Union, are set to hold elections this year. That's more voters than ever before in history. In some ways, this should be seen as a celebration of democracy, a sign of its strength, with even dictators like Vladimir Putin feeling the need to adopt a veneer of democratic legitimacy. But in practice, of course, it's not going to work quite like that the outcome will be fixed or preordained in many places, like Russia itself, Syria, Belarus, Venezuela, or Iran. In many elections around the world, there are likely to be many dirty tactics to try and buy votes, leverage resources in favor of the incumbent, stack the odds against challengers, spread disinformation, gerrymander voting districts, etc.
1: To those ploys, we now need to add a new danger artificial intelligence-powered disinformation being used to delude and trick voters. We're talking about deep fakes, phony videos, and of course, portraying things that didn't actually happen, or even worse, twisting or faking the words and actions of particular candidates. Is our culture or our electoral system strong enough to withstand this? Are our voters sufficiently clued up? Are we prepared in our communities and government, all working together? And then we need to think about how might this play out in perhaps the most consequential election of them all, the big daddy, the November elections in the US.
2: To help us understand the full implications of what might be about to hit us in 2024, we're delighted to be joined today by Miles Taylor. He was the former chief of staff in the Department of Homeland Security during the Trump administration, before he resigned in disgust over Trump's degradation and abuse of that office. Taylor was later revealed to be the author of the famous anonymous essay in the New York Times, titled, I Am Part of the Resistance Inside the Trump Administration. Taylor is now the co-founder of the U.S. Futures Policy Studio in Washington, looking at electoral risks, and specifically the risks of artificial intelligence. He's also the author of the recent New York Times bestseller, Blowback. I began our interview by asking him about why he decided to join the Trump administration in the first place, despite his own personal doubts about Trump's character and policies.
0: I'd gone into the Trump administration very clear-eyed about who Donald Trump was. Spent my career in the Republican Party, worked in the George W. Bush administration, I certainly was not a MAGA Trump Republican, but it was clear once he won that even though a lot of us didn't support him, that there was an urgent need for people who'd actually been in top government agencies before to go back in and help this man, for better or for worse, run the largest organization on the face of the planet, the United States government, and try to do so with some element of stability. So a lot of folks went in. I went into the Department of Homeland Security to try to make sure that the homeland was safe from the undulations and the turbulence of the white house but it became pretty evident alex that after the first year of the trump presidency when we put a lot of bad decisions back in the box we kept him from doing really impulsive things It became clear by year two that that wasn't working anymore a lot of the really egregious policies that we had advised the president against he was now implementing and defying his team Things like family separation of children at the southern border, things that shouldn't have happened that were going to result in obvious public policy train wrecks started to move forward. My frustration internally was all of these people around the president were starting to see that their efforts were no longer successful to contain him and that he was indeed very dangerous and corrupt. And I felt like that needed to be known to the American people. I published that opinion piece anonymously within the New York Times to sound that alarm, but eventually felt like it was very important to come out publicly to have that conversation so people could assess for themselves whether I was credible, and so I could give them the much more specific justifications for what I was saying. So unmasked myself in 2020, and then we led a group of ex-officials to oppose Donald Trump's reelection.
2: Yeah, I mean, you personally... Paid a very heavy price for speaking out, right?
0: You know, look, at the end of the day, I try to be really open with people about it so they understand what this moment is like in the United States when it comes to open discourse and whether that discourse is really free and open anymore. And in my case, going and speaking out against Trump cost me my home. It cost me my job. It cost me the relationship that I was in at the time, the marriage I was in. It cost me my personal security and my life savings. And years later, we still grapple with MAGA extremists that stalk family members, that harass us. It's a very, very different environment than just 10 years ago. I mean, I always say to folks, if I'd left the Bush administration in protest, The consequences would have been the Bush team and alumni would have been mad at me. And that would have been it. I would have gone on with my life. It wouldn't be what happened to me election night 2020, which is election night 2020. I spent that evening in a safe house under armed guard with a pistol under my pillow. That is not what dissent should look like in America. And yet what's so uncommon about my story is that it's become common and that so many people now at the federal, state, and local level have had similar experiences.
2: Wow. That's just shocking.
0: In fact, what I've been saying for the past few years is that we are witnessing the largest spike statistically of threats against U.S. public officials in modern history. And not terribly long ago, the Attorney General Merrick Garland came out and finally said something similar to that effect and validated it based off of the data within the U.S. Justice Department. That is worth remembering. When you have such a high volume of threats, your expectation in the national security community is that some of those are going to result in successful attacks.
2: Yeah, the thing that I found most fascinating after January the 6th was the debates I had with my American friends Was the fact that Biden was successfully inaugurated evidence that at the end of the day, the American system worked and we could all breathe a sigh of relief? Or was it an absolutely terrifying brush with death and a sign of how fragile our guardrails are and it could happen again? What's your take on that?
0: Yeah, I think it's too soon to write the story. It's too soon to breathe a sigh of relief, but it's also too soon to write America's eulogy. We're somewhere in limbo at the moment, waiting to see how this shakes out. Some listeners might think eulogy is a hyperbolic word, but I feel pretty convinced, based on my time in the Trump administration, that were he to win re-election, America and its institutions in their present iteration are very unlikely to sustain that systematic onslaught unlike the first term where there was a lot of incidental damage to American institutions, the designs for a second term quite openly from Trump and his team are to undermine those institutions as a matter of policy. And I think they're likely to be quite successful in that if he wins a second term. But that's why we're in this limbo moment. And there are a lot of different factors this election cycle that could affect that trajectory, and not least of which are seismic changes we've seen in technology since 2020.
2: So that's a great jumping off point to turn to the meat of the interview, which is the upcoming election. Now you are co-founder of this US futures policy studio, looking at risks for electoral security, and in particular, the massive danger posed by artificial intelligence. So tell us a bit about that. What is it that we're facing this year and why is it so much worse than in previous years?
0: Well, here's the core of it. Artificial intelligence is poised to supercharge threats to the U.S. 2024 elections and, of course, elections worldwide. Roughly half the world is voting this year and we are going to see these technologies that create deep fakes of audio and video and images and can enable cyber attacks being used to undermine elections all around the globe
2: give me an example of what kind of thing could be done
0: we saw not long ago a pretty chilling example of this in slovakia there were presidential elections in the country on the eve of the vote an audio recording was released allegedly portraying one of the candidates talking to an associate about rigging the election. That went viral in the country, had an enormous impact on the conversation, and experts believe may have had a decisive impact on the outcome with the opponent that wasn't featured in the recording winning the election. It, of course, came out within days that this audio was indeed a deepfake. It was not one of the candidates speaking. But certainly that information didn't come out in time for the public passions to cool. That is an example of what we think will happen in a lot of elections, potentially this coming year. Nefarious actors attempting to create what we would call in the United States an October surprise, a last minute jarring revelation that could upend the election in unexpected ways. And it's now much easier to do than it ever was because of AI. Now, we have seen speed of transmission. It's always increasing. We've seen it with social media with the last few elections. Fake news can travel fast. But the thing that didn't change terribly much is you still have to come up with something that's authentic and believable. That's the hard part is convincing people. That is what AI has now made so easy. The hardest part of the fake news process was always creating something untrue that seemed believable. Now, it's the easiest part of the process. AI tools can help you create forgeries and fakes very, very quickly, very easily. So now we have high speed of transmission from social media, great ease to create fake content. And it's a witch's brew, if you will, for threats to democracy and specifically to elections.
2: I mean, I guess you could have two different things. You could have the big October surprise. um Some. Deep fake video that exposes some massive scandal. But you could also presumably have people just being bombarded with like dozens of small little things, all of which sow doubt either in the position taken by the candidate or the process of voting or the integrity of the vote. Do you think it's going to be a bombardment of small deep fakes, just like hundreds of them, or like one big thing?
0: Well, there's a couple of different ways this could manifest. One thing I want to convey to listeners is just a comparison to what we saw in 2016. Of course, a lot of people tracked the extent of Russian interference in the U.S. elections in 2016 when it was purported that Russia had several hundred cyber warriors at what was called their internet research agency, mounting these attacks virtually on the U.S. election, by creating memes and trying to get groups pitted against each other. What took Russia hundreds of people and many, many months is something I feel quite confident that I could do now today as a single individual in my home in a few weeks. So
2: you don't need lots of people. You could have one person doing a lot.
0: I could train a cohort of AI agents and bots to do what the Russians did in 2016, and I could do that with my own resources, and I could do that with relative ease now. That gives people a sense of the order of magnitude of the threat, is now any committed nefarious actor could attempt to level a campaign on the size that the Russians did in 2016 with far fewer resources and to obfuscate where it's actually coming from. Now, one of the more insidious aspects of the misuse of AI tools is the hyper-personalization. And so what we're trying to do is essentially create a crystal ball for policymakers to help them see what these threats are gonna look like in the lead up to the election. And one of the scenarios that we have sketched out is that the hyper-personalization will make it a lot harder for your everyday voter to understand that they're being duped. AI-enabled tools Allow for something to be tailored really, really quickly towards the target and make it believable. You might get a phone call that is a person saying that they're running the local polls down at the high school and asking, you know, is this Miles Taylor? Yeah, this is Miles Taylor. Oh, you're the Miles Taylor that lives at 178 Edgewood Lane? "Uh Uh-huh, this is him. Hey, I'm the clerk down at the polling place and just wanted to let you know we're having to shut down because there's local militiamen with guns here, but it's okay We're going to open up the polls again tomorrow. We'll have a higher police presence. And and by the way, the governor has extended voting into tomorrow. Oh, okay, thanks. I appreciate you calling. Yeah, just make sure to let your friends and family know that type of phone call would feel real. It would be socially validating become someone has said my name and validated my location. They've referenced things I know. You wouldn't imagine that the entire time you were speaking to a bot and a deep faked interactive piece of audio. That is completely possible now. And we've run those scenarios and we've run them actually on experts and shown that election protection experts are even fooled by these techniques. So we're walking into uncharted territory.
2: Yes. So actually, your studio has produced a kind of video highlighting some of the examples that an average voter might get bombarded with. We're just going to play a short clip of that for listeners to hear.
1: Um, our kids go to school together. Edward, hi, it's Reverend Jones from the church calling. Hi, Reverend, what's going on? Well, your sister asked me to reach out. Luis, what's up, buddy? It's Danny from the office. Hey, Care
0: Bear, it's Mom. Looks like they closed the local polls early. Something about a lack of staff. Anyway, just wanted to yeah, say your Your family's yeah. trying to get a hold of you, man. I guess your father, Rodrigo, he's in the hospital. If you're late to your shift, Hello? you're fired. Hello? I don't Hello? care if you went to vote. Edward, listen, we need you to stay care. home today.
2: Care. So, what was going on in that clip?
0: You hear all of these voicemails from people calling friends and loved ones and colleagues and warning them about violence at the polls or warning them not to vote. Every single voice you heard in that clip was fake. They were deep faked audio of folks that were just created by our designers. They sound real, they can be made to be interactive. And what we wanna try to convey here is not that this is just possible, but it's quite likely. These techniques are now widely available. And to me, it would be actually quite surprising and quite a shock if bad actors didn't try to use these tools. Now, what you also hear in those clips is a hint of how these types of tactics, rather than just being personalized and targeted towards key people, could be spread in mass via robocalls. And that's one of the things that we've talked to federal authorities about here in the United States is our worry that these techniques will be scaled in mass towards voters in key swing states in the United States and will be really, really hard to inoculate against because a lot of the populations, vulnerable populations that we think might be targeted are older voters who are less tech savvy And who, frankly, are typically expected to go to the polls, but could be dissuaded by things like threats of violence and misinformation and disinformation. And it's really hard to then reach those populations and explain to them what has happened. And we're already seeing this happen, Alex, in the financial services sector. There's been an explosion of deepfake audio attacks targeting elderly populations to try to get them to transfer money by making them think it's their nephew or a goddaughter calling and saying, hey, I'm in jail. I need help getting bailed out. Hey, the IRS is asking for money and convincing them to actually make these transfers. It will not be a surprise to see those tactics move over to attempts at voter suppression.
2: I just want to pick up a couple of things. Who might be these nefarious actors? I mean, this is such an awful question to even contemplate asking. But is it possible that actually people in the political party structures would enable this? Or is it sort of zealous individuals acting under their own steam? Who do we think would be most likely to propagate these kind of deep fakes?
0: I think we know for almost certain foreign adversaries will take advantage of these tactics. And in fact, already are. You know, there's reporting out of the U.S. intelligence community that Russia, China, Iran, and other actors are already starting to leverage the scale they can get from AI to try to sow discord in the United States. But interestingly, it's going to be the type of person that Donald Trump tried to say was influencing the 2016 election. Remember, he famously in a debate said, I don't think it's the Russians. I think it's a 400 pound guy in his mother's basement. (laughs) Well, Donald Trump this time around might actually be right. At the time he said that the 400 pound guy in his mother's basement wasn't capable of launching an attack on the scale that the Russians did. But he is now. And that is I think the worry for law enforcement in the United States is there will be such a cacophony. You won't be able to tell where the volume is being turned up, where it's emanating from. That is a big worry going into this cycle. And one of the things that we're trying to do is at least raise public awareness so that people are more dismissive of this avalanche of fake news that they're going to see. We can't help them determine what's real and what's not, but we can make them more skeptical.
2: Okay. So, are your proposals getting traction? Who are you engaging with and how are you trying to raise public awareness?
0: Well, there's a couple of pieces to this problem beyond public awareness. And actually, one of them is making good use of AI tools. You know, in my opinion, artificial intelligence is not the enemy here. Any leap in technology. Of course, we're going to see it used for bad purposes, but it also can be used for good. And one of the conversations that we are actively having with U.S. agencies responsible for election protection is on how to best leverage those tools to actually shield the vote better, to really, really quickly swat down fake news and disinformation, to reach a wider set of voters and to better protect voting networks against AI-enabled cyber attacks. So there's actually a good news story in here, which is that if election officials can muster the initiative quickly enough, they can actually take advantage of these tools to make sure we have the most secure election in the modern era. But the clock is ticking. We're not far out from the election and it's really, really hard to get policymakers to become technologists, but that's what we need this cycle. We need every policymaker responsible for protecting elections to become a technologist, to understand how the threat will manifest itself and actually use some of these tools to mitigate that threat.
2: But, I mean, this is a huge task. I have been an election observer, a sort of United Nations election observer. And when I was doing that, it was all about making sure people filled in the ballot correctly, that the ballot boxes didn't get stolen, that people weren't using fake identities. We used to sort of ink their finger with an ultraviolet ink so they couldn't come and vote twice. I mean, this is sort of a completely different level of preparedness. And do you think election authorities are ready for this? I mean, are they doing enough proactively? This isn't something that's happening at the ballot box. It's the context in which the elections are taking place.
0: Well, I can say confidently that they're not prepared. And those election officials will concede as much. And I've spent a lot of time going and talking to Different election officials in swing states around the country was just recently giving a speech to one of those groups. And I had a whole line of people come up to me afterwards and say, can you help us run war games and tabletop exercises to figure out how to do this in our communities? That is, I think, a silver lining is they are attuned to the threat. Even though they don't feel prepared, these officials are really, really eager to find ways to make sure their communities know what's coming. But to your point, Alex, there has to be some sort of new system or process to deal with this threat. And I think we have analogies we can look back to in in recent history. One example is after the September 11th terrorist attacks in the United States, there was a big public inoculation campaign called See Something, Say Something. Now, I wouldn't blame any listener for rolling their eyes when they hear those terms because we see those posters and we think, I don't know, is this stopping terrorist attacks? Well, I actually had that question when I helped take over the leadership at the Department of Homeland Security. I wanted to know, are these campaigns successful? And we did a study and we found that over a roughly five year time period, something like three fourths of the terrorist attacks that we stopped had a community nexus. In other words, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, someone in the public who sounded the alarm about something they saw and they said something, and it helped stop the attack. So those campaigns can work. And I think we're in a moment now with AI threats to elections where we need people to have a see something, say something mindset, or you know, as Reagan famously quipped, trust, but verify. Trust what their friends or family member are saying to them, but going to verify, because if you get that phone call from someone saying there's gunmen at the polls, don't show up, and it's your daughter, call your daughter back on her phone. Make sure it actually is her. And those little steps are going to be the habits that we need American voters to start to adopt in order to make sure these attacks are unsuccessful.
2: Could you possibly get candidates in political races to sign a pledge that where a false video or something has gone out that ostensibly undermines their opponent, that they are willing to go out and say that is not true. They could do a non-aggression pact with each other, that if deep fake videos are used that undermine the opponent's campaign, is that just utterly naive, wishful thinking, given the climate we're in? But that would help, wouldn't it?
0: I think normally, Alex, I would say I agree with you completely. But
2: these are not normal times.
0: I think I have low confidence in that outcome, but we also have precedent for that. I mean, in 2016, if we had had a different person as the Republican nominee, it would have been obvious that that person would have come out, condemned Russian interference and said, I don't care if they're supporting me or my opponent. It's wrong. Stay out of American democracy or we're going to punish you. And instead, we had him dismiss the threat and sort of openly welcome the interference to his benefit. Unfortunately, I think this cycle, as AI-enabled attacks ramp up, you're likely going to have a hard time getting pro-Trump Republicans to go out there and agree to condemn those tactics if those tactics are helpful to them. And so we're in a difficult moment. And this cycle, we really can't count on government agencies to save us. We can't really count on election officials to be the first line of defense. We really have to count on our neighbors to be that first line of defense and to prepare them for that. And most of the public isn't prepared, but this is doable. We've done it before. There's precedent for these types of campaigns, but now's the moment to get going.
2: So we've sort of been skirting a little bit around the subject, but is it more likely to be a phenomenon that is used to undermine the Democrats and the left? and sort of Republican MAGA types who are going to be playing this? Or is it going to happen in both directions?
0: At this point, we're seeing it happen, actually, in both directions. There is greater volume at the moment based on our sort of heuristic tracking coming from the right. And there are also a number of efforts we've been made aware of on the political right in the United States to weaponize these tools against the political opposition. In some ways completely consistent with first amendment protected speech in the US in other ways it's a little bit murkier and i think that's what lawmakers are going to be monitoring is it is illegal in the united states to engage in voter suppression to spread information with the attempt of disenfranchising certain people from engaging in their you know protected right to vote so some of these campaigns i strongly suspect will veer into that territory but there's another component here another weapon that the justice system can use against these criminals, frankly, which is fraud. In a lot of cases, these deepfakes will be creating fraudulent likenesses of public officials. And by the way, because these are often political campaigns, they'll try to raise money off of these deepfakes. Well, that's illegal in the United States. That would be a fraudulent thing to do is to use someone's likeness to raise money. So there are conversations happening across the U.S. government about how can they start to flex those muscles of going after these offenders for engaging in fraudulent activity, for engaging in voter suppression in a way that doesn't stifle speech because you have a right to lie. You know, you have a right to create fake videos using AI and say stupid things. You have a right to be stupid, but you don't have a right to violate other people's democratic rights. And so there's a very healthy conversation happening on how to enforce those laws and to do so early in this cycle so that you send a message of deterrence to people who would potentially use these technologies for ill purposes.
2: Yeah. But I mean, the challenge with that is if you're bombarded with videos, I mean, actually squashing them all, it'll be like whack-a-mole, and the damage will have been done if it's an election. It's no use prosecuting these people in February and March. Like, we're still prosecuting people from January the 6th. And Donald Trump is saying he might pardon them.
0: Yeah. If we think we're going to be able to win the game of whack-a-mole against fake news, we're sorely mistaken. We've already lost, if that's our perspective. But if we can train the person that would go play that game of whack-a-mole, that it's a game and that the things they're seeing pop up aren't real and to kind of be dismissive of them, we're going to be much, much more effective, to stretch the analogy. You know, we want that voter to understand there's just a lot of junk out there to try to ignore most of it and to go to trusted sources of information about where and how to vote and when.
2: Right. So just coming back again to lovely Donald Trump, because These are not normal times, and he's not a normal candidate. How do you see the current election playing out if he makes it to be the candidate, which on current trends looks quite likely? And we have an election in November where perhaps there are so many deep fakes or there's so much disinformation that it's open to either candidate really to claim this wasn't a fair election or the election was stolen. I mean, how do you see this playing out in real terms?
0: One of the things that I worry about, Alex, is how false claims will be able to be made in this election more believable. So I'll give you an example that we just ran recently in one of these war games that we did. We brought together a bunch of former U.S. cabinet officials and media company executives and AI company CEOs and we ran them through scenarios we expect to happen in 2024. And one of them is a scenario that occurred uh, 72 hours after the election, where we see an auto texting bot generated campaign to lots and lots of mobile numbers across US swing states sharing what looks like a screen grab of security camera footage of poll workers throwing out mail in ballots in dumpsters behind a building. And we simulated. What it would be like for public officials to be made aware of this threat, how it could spread quickly, and also the difficulty of getting ground truth about whether that was a real screen grab or not. Now, there are deepfake detection technologies out there, but they can't tell you with 100% confidence most of the time whether something's real or fake. They often give you a confidence score. And if someone's designed it well enough, you may end up with kind of a muddling score and not sure if this actually is a picture of security camera footage of poll workers throwing out ballots. So I go back to 2020 when Donald Trump and his supporters claimed it was a stolen election. They had to provide proof. And that proof was kind of hard to come by. Now, it took time, but the courts ultimately found there wasn't really evidence of fraud in the election. Now it will be easier to manufacture what looks like evidence of fraud and very, very difficult for those courts to ultimately get to the conclusions that is not real evidence. So we've been running those scenarios to try to find the gaps and seams in the response and find ways to intervene. But even the experts have been fooled by some of these scenarios. And one last one that I'll add is I don't want to call out any specific U.S. government agency, but we ran a scenario where we told them about a case of a student in the Midwest, in Indiana, who created a deep fake of a naked guy running into his school. And this was during a basketball game, and the school had to be evacuated because this picture was spreading, and they were worried about a guy streaking through the school. And then the local police responded and a SWAT team went to the student's house. They found out it was him. He was arrested. And so we showed them this case and we got them to weigh in. Were the local police in the wrong? Did they overreact? Was the student in the wrong? Technically, was this a violation of the law? And they took positions. They took sides. They had strong opinions. We revealed to them at the end of the presentation, Alex, that the whole story was made up.
2: They didn't even question they it. They
0: all assumed it was real. And we had pictures of the student and the arrest and the security camera footage. And they all believed that this scenario of this kid and the deep fake happened. But not only that, they took positions. And that's what we wanted to convey is that even the experts can be fooled. And what's nefarious is that they can be emotively charged about cases that aren't even real. And if they thought that was a compelling example, they'll just have to wait and see what's likely to happen here in 2024 because they will be more convincing and dedicated efforts to try to dupe those election officials. So, but it's important that we run those exercises to get people aware of what's coming.
2: Donald Trump is already the kind of person who will contest the elections, whether there are deep fakes or not. But this creates an absolute field day for both sides to contest. And up and down the country, we're not just talking about the presidential elections. You're talking about all the local elections as well. So we could be jammed up in contests and recounts and arguments that voters were duped or that people thought the polls were closed early and they weren't. And So that's a really frightening scenario.
0: I'll go back to one thing, Alex, which is The way to avoid that scenario being frightening is to take the piss out of it. Is if we are expecting it's going to be ugly, the gut punch to our democracy will be less painful. If we aren't expecting it, if we let ourselves, our neighbors, our friends be surprised by these attacks, it will rock the psyche, not just of the US electorate, but other electorates around the world. So being prepared in advance, expecting it to get ugly, Will actually diminish the blow and hopefully allow us to emerge with better lessons learned about how to prevent this from happening in future election cycles. Like After
1: the break, even if AI may cause more chaos, we promise to order the disorder. Alex, thank you so much for bringing Miles Taylor on our little program. He is bringing top table insights from inside the beast. There's so much to unpick there, but what I'd like to start with first is the vengefulness that he described on behalf of the Trump administration and maybe how this can be generalized, which is that neopopulism, because it's not about particular policies or principles, it actually has revenge as a principle where it turns revenge into policy. And this is so worrying because institutions don't work if people aren't willing to go to both their boss or their colleagues and say, you know, I really think we're dropping the ball here. And one of the things that to me has always made British and American institutions so wonderful is that they have less of what's called power distance. And for listeners who don't know what it is, let me tell you an analogy. East Asians traditionally have a much greater power distance in South Korea and Japan than, for example, the Scandinavians who have the lowest power distance. And, you know, the black boxes in those flights, when they go down, there was a time when a South Korean co-pilot said, sir, I think that the such and such gauge may whatever. And the pilot said, no, I don't think so the co-pilot didn't confront him in the plane crash and everyone died because it would have been a loss of face to tell the more senior guy you were wrong and whatever, because they have a very great power distance, even if you're slightly older or have a slightly greater rank in the Korean culture. And traditionally in very egalitarian societies like Sweden or Denmark, the boss can be interrupted at any minute and people can disagree and bring ideas forward to him. And he doesn't have any special privileges that the employees don't have. They have very low power distance. What I have seen in my lifetime is America has changed from a more low power distance society to a higher power distance society. It's going to only get extremely worse if the godhead neo-pagan idol says, anyone who disagrees with me gets kicked out of the institutions. And if you don't worship me and kiss my rear end, I'm never appointing you to any of these jobs. And I'm terrified about all the myriad implications of what miles per forth there.
2: Yeah. I mean, I also have an anecdote of this power distance, which applies personally to me. When I became ambassador to Georgia, my very first meeting with the embassy team, I told them the story about a Thai princess who fell off a boat and drowned because none of her staff Dared touch her because that would be Les Majesty. It would be infringing the royal person. So they watched her drown. And so I said to my staff, if I'm doing something really stupid, don't let me drown. I don't know. It still took a little while for them to know they really could come to me and say, you know what, Alex? I think if I were you, I would approach that issue differently. It takes time, it takes courage to speak up to the boss especially when the boss writes your appraisal that may dictate your pay package or your bonus for that year. For sure. But let me switch to something else here, Jason. If you are a loyal Republican, would you work in a second Trump administration where there is absolutely no pretense now about some of the policies he's going to pursue and the kind of people he's likely to appoint to his administration? Would you stay on thinking, I'll keep my head down and hope to survive the next four years, or I'll keep my head down and just diligently do my particular job and try and drown out the craziness around me? Or would you say, no, this is likely to cross a barrier of ethics and I cannot work in this administration? What is the right thing to do?
1: Well, Alex, let me tell you this from my personal experience. Two days after Trump was elected in November 2016, a relative of a famous Republican billionaire reached out to me and said, you know, I'm connected to these people who supported Trump. He's going to care a lot about Libya, which by the way, shocked me. I didn't think Trump would care at all about Libya, but he's going to care about Libya because he wants to succeed where Hillary failed. Would you meet me at my home and we can talk through certain things? You know, of course I, I went there, I met with him. If such a person contacted me in 2025, I'm not going to give a lot of time because what happened the last time is we drew up all these policy papers. We advocated for things. No one ever read the things that we did, and he didn't care. So I'm not going on that journey again, Alex, sadly. Yeah. So the questions raised by Miles actually pose the question, Alex, is democracy and ascertaining the will of the people even possible at all? in our new information landscape. Do you know what I mean? There's no neutral arbiter on what is a fact and what isn't a fact, and the information ecosystem is so biased. I don't think that the founding fathers could have imagined the implications of this kind of information ecosystem. They certainly couldn't have imagined that AI could make micro-targeted narratives, which could be used to manipulate individuals by telling this one, there was an attack on your polling station, and telling that one, oh, the polls are open longer, you can vote later at the end of your shift. This was not something that our system was set up to cope with. So is democracy compatible with our current information ecosystem that Miles put forward?
2: Oh, Christ, Jason. I'm actually just left struggling for words. I've grown up, my entire political mindset is based around the idea that Democracy is the best of all the alternate systems that are out there, and I'm not going to be swayed from that. It just means we, as the voters, are going to have to be wised up to it. The elements of democracy, of course, are not just the elections. And I know we've covered this and I go on about this in episode after episode. It's also about free media. It's also about transparency. It's also about accountability. The issue about disinformation is that those traditional mechanisms, we don't know if we can trust them anymore. Where it comes back to is we just have to wise up as consumers in the same way that after the invention of email and online financial transactions, we learn to get a little bit more savvy about phishing scams or spam email. We've all learned the hard way, don't click on an attachment from an unknown source. So I think the only way we can navigate through this is we have to learn to be savvier consumers of information.
1: so Will you order the disorder with me, Alex? I think that part of that order that we're seeking for is going to be that cultural change and that education and the civic responsibility that you mentioned. Do you know what I mean? I think that the young are probably going to be better at this than the old. They know how to source what is true and fake online easier. They get the online environment better than some people who are older. But For me to order the disorder, more regulation is needed.
2: Well, I want to put back the question that you just posed me, the sort of killer question is, can our democracy handle this? I mean, who would be making the regulations? If it's the people who've been elected on the back of extremely dodgy electoral practices working for populist leaders, are they going to pass those regulations?
1: Of course. Our current setup where government is so easily infiltrated by the special interests and lobbyists The more technical a discipline, the greater the power lobbyists have over the legislation that's passed around in Washington at present. Those things are very worrying. You're going to need popular will. I will go out on a limb and say all problems of democracy must perforce be solved by the people. And where there's a technology that needs regulation, whether it's the printing press or the use of AI robocalls, the people must band together and push for that regulation do we take steps to build will, to run referenda, to push and have citizen groups that say, we don't think these kind of AIs should be allowed to do you know these deep fakes and, and fake robocalls or whatever, because we just don't think that this is something that should be in the popular domain.
2: Could you actually ban AI? I mean, it's not just corporations. The point Miles was making is that This can be done by individuals sitting inside the basement, and it can be done by foreign actors sort of beaming it into our sitting rooms at home or beaming it into our phones. So even if you said AI is banned in the United States, I mean, how would you enforce that?
1: Correct. It's all too late for this in the sense that the cat is out of the bag people would find a way to circumvent the ban and they would have a huge advantage. And the Chinese and Russians would simply just circumvent our bans. I think that what we could have done is regulated the environments in which these things were produced and then later disseminated with very smart regulations 10 or 15 years ago. But the solutions still lie with us. We as a people can decide that we don't want a culture of revenge and vengeance, and that we don't want to live in a society that operates like that, And we need legislation which protects people and protects whistleblowers. But
2: I will say, since I'm a Brit, that though it might not work for the US, I think it would work in the UK. His suggestion about taking the piss out of disinformation, having actors or talk shows or sketches absolutely making ludicrous artificial intelligence videos, and people realizing how stupidly they can be gulled by disinformation. That might work in the UK.
1: You're right that the use of humor is going to be really important in popular communication and that to order the disorder, we're going to need campaigns like see it, say it, sorted, and taking the piss out of AI. Alex, you've worked in the policy space. What are other things that we can do given there only being 10 months or so left in this year and only eight months to the you know, the granddaddy of them all, the- 2024 U.S. presidential election. What can be being done now with the tools we have at present?
2: I think the political culture in the U.K., although it's troubled me, it is not beyond redemption. It is not so degraded that it's impossible for the leaders of our main political parties to issue a joint statement about the risk of artificial intelligence and to warn voters Because they all are at risk, even if they think they might have an advantage this election round, it'll come back to bite them the next election round. So I personally believe there is still space and an opportunity for our political leaders to warn the public about the dangers of this and to reach a pact that they themselves will not knowingly benefit or abuse artificial intelligence. I still believe that's possible in the UK at any rate. So that wraps up today's episode. And just to reinforce how scarily lifelike artificial intelligence can sound, this sign-off you're about to hear is not actually Jason and me. These are artificial intelligence renderings of our voice. And if you think when you're listening carefully that maybe you can tell there's a difference, remember the technology is improving all the time.
1: If you too want to help order the disorder, you can tap follow right now and you'll be notified when every episode launches. We're on social media too. Just
2: search Disorder Show.
1: And we have a Substack now. So if you want more about each episode we release, You can subscribe to it by following the links in our show notes.
2: Our producer is George
1: McDonough. Our executive producer is Neil Fern. Thanks for listening and hope you have an orderly week.